Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Well, this evening is our 11th sermon in our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. We've reached the remaining five clauses of the Creed, and this evening we will examine three of them. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Now, we saw last Lord's Day that these are not items quickly added at the end, they're all part of the Creed's third article, focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit. And in these first three, we find an interrelationship. In other words, the Holy Catholic Church is further qualified as to its content and its condition. Content, it is the communion of saints. A communion of saints that is fundamentally transformed from their previous condition. In other words, they exist in the state of their sins forgiven. And so, the Holy Catholic Church is this living organism of saints, regenerated, reborn in all parts of the world, at all times in history to the present and the future, from all peoples chosen, set aside, holy, forgiven, reborn by water and the Spirit, destined for eternal life. It is a united organism living in true faith. And of this organism, the believer confesses that he or she personally is and always will be a living member. Now notice how the creed confesses what it means to believe in the church as the biblical context for the believer's conversion and experience of the Christian life. In other words, there is no such thing as a singular, solitary Christian. The organism and the individual come together in a complex and mutually supportive relationship, both visible in the local church, and invisible in their union in Christ. This is a biblical principle which we need to underline today more than we have even within my own lifetime. Because within a generation, we have seen the rising intolerance of biblically faithful 
churches and believers throughout North America and indeed the Western world. So the days of seeker sensitivity, of some vague evangelicalism which floated along the seas of a nominally Christian nation and culture sadly are now over. Or is it sad, I wonder? We consider the rest of the world where the gospel and the church is a profound minority. There we find the flame of faith and love of Christ and of one another burning brightly. But for us, the Christian who may be tempted to ignore this reality of being part of an organism, a a local church community, ignores the challenge that this tremendous seismic shift in attitude amongst the majority of our culture actually has for them going forward. The person who may be tempted to be led by personal taste, to think themselves faithful, yet ignoring clear biblical commands not to abandon the fellowship and communion of saints. A visible congregation is where each of us must reside. We will simply not survive in the long term in a hostile culture. Indeed, for all those in a minority around the world, what is their principal prayer beside the conversion of their families? It is that they may gather safely with other believers on the Lord's day to worship the Savior who saved them. Instead, for us, those who may choose the singular life, they will be eventually overwhelmed dying the death of a thousand compromises within a hostile culture. Our own confession as Anglican affirms that the church is a local congregation of faithful people, plural. A local congregation of faithful people who exist and are sustained and fed through two marks. The pure word of God preached the sacraments given to sustain their souls and hearts rightly administered according to the commands of God's word. What both the Apostles' Creed and our articles are doing is nothing more than to affirm what the scripture teaches so clearly. We find it particularly in the Apostles Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We can gain comfort, I suppose, can't we, that here is a church stumbling into one error after another. Yet the Apostle Paul calls them saints, even in light of the terrible sin that existed in that congregation. The result of this spiritually skewed understanding that they had in relation to biblical doctrine where they are more concerned with their culture in Corinth, their own status within it, rather than who they are corporately in Jesus Christ. So Paul writes at length, doesn't he, 
expanding his statement about who and what we are as Christians, believers. You are, he writes, the body of Christ. In other words, he wants the Corinthians to understand who we are as Christians can never be separated for what it means to belong to a local congregation. It is there in that locus that all the blessings of God are poured out. Indeed, Irenaeus, the early church father, made that tremendous statement that outside of the church, outside the communion of saints, of forgiven sinners, there is indeed no salvation. Therefore, we see here in the creed how the organism is that of the holy. It is one of saints and one of forgiven saints. So let's look at that briefly together this evening. A holy organism. So let's begin with a question. What does it mean, really, to be holy? Well, when we consider the, the New Testament, we find how the Apostle Paul addresses both the Corinthian church and the churches in the region of Ephesus, as we saw in our study, as those who are made holy. In other words, they are sanctified. Notice it's the past aspect, the past tense. And to the Ephesians, he writes in the infinitive, to be holy and blameless in his sight, as we heard this evening. There we see a more indefinite, a continuing aspect. Later on, in his same letter to the Ephesians, we saw in our study how Paul draws an analogy for husbands and wives based on the relationship of Christ to his church. He explains in chapter 5 how Christ is the head of the church, and he loves the church, gave himself up for her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here we see a future fullness, a culmination in other words. So we have to take the term holy and gather all of this together. There is a point in which we are declared holy. In the past, there is a present reality. We are holy as we live out our daily lives as Christian believers. And there is a great confidence, a solace for all of us, that there is a future fullness, a culmination, where every tear is dried and all grief and mourning ends. So, we should ask a question, is the church a, uh, is it really something that we just see then in the New Testament era? In other words, did it exist before the, the day of Pentecost? Already we're starting to see that there is this sense of temporality about it, past, present, future, culmination. Well, when we examine how Paul uses various terms like holy, and church in his letters, we discover that he's using what are indeed two well-known terms from the Old Testament Greek translation, the Septuagint. 
That is, he draws the adjective holy, like the noun church, from the Old Testament. So what happens on the day of Pentecost is not a new entity, but its expansion, its content, shifts as it gathers in not just those who are descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, as Paul writes, but according to faith. The Gentiles are coming in. Is that not the great debates of the early church? The outrageous claim that Gentiles can be saved and evidenced in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and Cornelius and his family? So we see here the expansion of this communion of saints from a localized geographical area and people to gather in the entire globe across all times, nations, and tongues. We find, indeed, how in Exodus 19, God tells Moses that the Israelites are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So it shouldn't surprise us, should it, that Peter himself would make the same assertion of you and me, that we exist now, holy, set apart, to be a priest, an intercessor between those who are lost and a world that is stumbling with ways that it cannot understand and to bring them before the Lord in prayer and in supplication. In the same way that we find this command to be holy is done over and over again, how this remnant of God's people will be called holy, set aside for this specific task in their lives. So our conclusion must be this, that whatever or whoever belongs to God is in union with Christ should be called holy. That God's chosen people are called holy. It's to indicate their special relationship to their heavenly father. And we follow this redemptive thread to Christ and his work, then the holy people are redeemed people in Christ Jesus. In other words, holy now is the church described in the creed because we are chosen, set apart by God because he predestined us by grace alone to be a holy people. This is our glorious inheritance. And indeed, he continues to dwell in the church of the communion of saints, in the person of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee that we heard in our reading this evening. This is such an important biblical principle, my friend. The relation we have then to works and faith shifts, doesn't it? Because now we are a different people than we were before. Our standing before God is fundamentally different. We have a responsibility, don't we, to those around us, to the lost, to pray for our government, to be good citizens, because we are holy, a holy people. Therefore, the members of God's church be gradually become deeper 
They become more nuanced. They gain a deeper understanding, a holiness, as it's called, as this reality of being set apart, being equipped, being qualified by God through the Holy Spirit. But what of this organism of saints, the communion of saints, the description, the the content of this holy Catholic Church? In other words, it gathers on the one hand the benefits and the blessings that the Lord Jesus pours out upon the local congregation of believers through word and sacrament. But it also adds an emphasis on the responsibilities we have toward one another as members of a congregation. We see it, don't we, the variety of gifts that Christ has given believers and the application of those gifts within the fellowship of believers. Why? Because we are set apart. Because we are members who all share in one Savior, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider what this actually means for us then. The glorious reality presented to us in the creed as we think of how Christ has achieved in his redeeming us, is underlined in the articles we've already studied. His suffering in his active obedience so that we would be declared righteous, rescuing us from sin and death in his passive obedience and suffering on death on the cross, so guaranteeing our inheritance in life everlasting. Therefore, recognizing that all the diverse gifts come and flow from Christ, who has presented gifts to his church. The Apostle Paul points how these gifts are all given for the common good, for the communion of saints. And so he illustrates our new lives in his analogy of the one body and the many parts. He's one he teaches again and again. We find it in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. But his conclusion is always the same. In Christ, we who are many form one body. We are all baptized by one spirit into one body. And we were given the one spirit to drink. Now, we can understand, can't we, how as we change location or our life context changes or situation changes, that God will lead us in time to a new local congregation. And it takes time, doesn't it, for us to consider, again, how we are to commit ourselves in membership. But we have these clear commands from Scripture that we are all, by one spirit, into one body, one spirit given to drink. And so we begin to see again, don't we, an analogy to what happens in the supper, in communion, as we gather word and sacrament. Where then is this affirmed to us as we consider again how Christ died for us and gave us these many gifts in the souls and realities and lives and experiences of one another? We all come together to stand before the table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and are so reminded of what Christ has done for us. And that this simple meal 
is a foreshadowing of that great culmination of which our citizenship in heaven is secured. Paul is very specific that in the body of Christ, all we think, say, and do must be characterized by love. Why? Because our Savior first loved us. And so we, as the communion of saints, love one another. The logic is very simple. It is so hard to do, though, we find, don't we? But it's usually because, my dear friends, we've taken our eyes off of our Savior Christ. Rather, we look at one another. But if we want to understand how we are to be in love with a fellow member of the local congregation, that is where we go. We find again that it's only by his grace that we are saved. Indeed, that we even know the gospel at all. And with that gratitude, we can turn to those around us and realize, yes, indeed, my Savior died for them too. Therefore, we look not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And as Paul writes, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And the more we understand this, my dear friends, these great truths of the gospel, the more we can love one another. It is not a love that comes from some throbbing part of our, I don't know, of our liver, let's say, but rather instead it is all done in Christ Jesus. We might not naturally be that kind of person, but we are one in Christ Jesus. And the more we consider this, the more it becomes a reality. It's important to remember how in John chapter 17, our Savior's final prayer with his disciples before his arrest and death, he prayed at length and repeatedly that his followers may be one so that the world might believe that you the Father have sent me. Why? Because Christ humbled himself in love for you. How much more has he already done? And would I not then in gratitude respond in love to those around me in the local congregation? There is no greater proof that the gospel is good news than the fact that it really does transform us and our relationships Therefore, it cuts across barriers of race and class and culture in a way that must shock the watching world. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, nearly half a century ago, I remember a book was published about the church entitled Cinderella with amnesia. The princess forgot who she was. There was a certain relevance about that description because it seems so many Christian believers have simply forgotten who we are and what we have become in Christ Jesus. 
his glorious body, his communion of saints, culminating as his glorious bride. But what about the organism of the forgiven, the forgiveness of sins? Why does it affirm this? The forgiveness of sins? Why not, I believe in the new birth, or a life of holiness, or some other comprehensive summary of these and many other aspects of our salvation? Does, isn't this a bit, well, short-sighted, or maybe a bit too negative? Well, the answer is that without the forgiveness of sins, there can be no salvation, no knowledge of God, no new birth, no place in his family, no holiness, no eternal life. But we know this, don't we, that today sin and guilt are ignored. The greatest challenge I faced 30 years ago in Europe was the fact that sin was a forgotten concept. It's taken 30 years, but it's the same case today, isn't it? Sin isn't taken seriously. Indeed, most don't even consider forgiveness necessary apart from some psychological benefit that comes with some sort of restoration. Shake hands and be friends. You know, it's interesting to note how in the early church, the pagans of the Roman world ridiculed the idea of the forgiveness of sins as well, but for the opposite reason. For them, it was impossible. How could a simple declaration erase your crime? They would laugh. So the early apologists made it clear, you must consider the biblical answer to consider what the forgiveness of sins has cost God. Two words, rescue and redemption. God's response is to enter our world, this world darkened by sin, with the singular purpose of rescue. The price tag in terms of humiliation are enormous. Yet it's the price he did not hesitate to pay. But there's more to it. There is redemption. This is the world of slavery. People robbed of freedom and rights, but long to be free. And this language is about the cost to buy that freedom. So throughout scripture, this is the language used to describe our lives under the dominion of sin. It dominates us. It deprives us. It overshadows us more than the most infamous dictator in all of human history. Slaves do not control their own lives. They are controlled by their master's sin and death. Sin is the human master. We cannot break free ourselves. We can't afford the price to purchase our freedom. So human sin and guilt combine to exclude us from every blessing that might be ours in salvation. Until they are dealt with, we are left outside. 
Now, this should not surprise us that this would be the argument the early apologists would take. Because that is exactly the way the Apostle Paul condensed the essence of salvation in very similar phrases in Colossians. He writes in Colossians 1, He, that is the Father, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption which is the forgiveness of sins. Now notice how all that is gathered in God's saving work as listed in these verses, and all that Paul has listed in his preceding verses in Colossians chapter 1, faith, love, hope, fruitful living, a growing knowledge of God, spiritual power, endurance, patience, thanksgiving, it all hinges on one thing alone, the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, Paul underlines this is the fundamental problem. Before we can even begin to cultivate any of these other aspects of being in fellowship with God, we need to account for the fact that we are actually cut off from him completely because of sin. The conclusion is that salvation cannot be something we build up ourselves, as if the goodness was already in there, like some perhaps modern Pelagian would arrogantly claim. The opposite is the case. We don't even start from a spiritually neutral position. We are his enemies, hateful, resentful of him, in opposition to him in a state of war with him, under his commendation, condemnation, I beg your pardon. The problem with every human attempt to find our way back into fellowship with God is that we ignore him. We ignore what he says about himself in his word, that he is holy and just, and that his holiness and his justice means we cannot ignore or tolerate sin in any shape or form in his presence. But it's in the cross that our redemption is found. But it's not just a cross. It is a singular, unique cross, the cross of Christ. It's in the cross of Christ that we receive the forgiveness of sins. The price is paid. We have redemption. This is the reason, my dear friends, why Paul said, I preach nothing among you, Corinthians, except Christ and him crucified. That's why hymn writers never tire of writing hymns about the cross. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. It's not a morbid fascination with cruel and unusual punishment. It's a celebration and amazement in this great movement of our Savior's love that brings about our salvation because it is his cross. And it's because it is his. By union in him, it becomes yours and mine. Amen.
thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.